Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering, and it is my pleasure to have uh, Dr. Mark Horowitz here. He is someone whose career I followed for a really long time. He hails from Australia, and he has probably made uh, kind of the biggest splash um, in the, I guess, the critical psychiatry space. Um, actually for quite some time. Mark is going to be talking about a really groundbreaking book that he's written. It's the Maudsley Deprescribing Guidelines. And I'm going to just set um, kind of the context for why this is such an important accomplishment. Um, as you may be aware on this channel, we talk a lot about psychiatric drug injuries. And you know that's what I'm interested in is helping people with those and Pretty much the main thing that we do to, to fix that is uh, drug tapering. You know, we try and remove the medications, but that is incredibly difficult and a, not a straightforward process. Up until now, there has been no real definitive guidelines on this. Um, even if you look at things like the Ashton Manual for Benzodiazepines, which Mark's book touches on as well, that was often waved away by people as being anecdotal and, you know, un, unscientific and, you know, really not endorsed by um, by an establishment. Um, but that's not the case with Mark's book. It bears the mantle of the Maudsley Guidelines, which is a very well-respected book of guidelines for, for doctors. And uh, so this is just, it's a, it's a watershed moment um, where patients and doctors are now going to have a authoritative resource on best practices for deprescribing. It's an absolutely enormous accomplishment. It's going to have, make a real impact on, on the care that people are going to get. And I'm just so excited to talk with Mark about that. And also, and also we're going to talk about um, Mark's journey and then kind of the evidence base behind things like um, uh, short-term and long-term antidepressant use. Um, and so we've got a lot to touch on. But Mark, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for coming mm -hmm. on and speaking with my audience. It's awesome to have you here. But before you dive into the book, though, just just for the people that who, that don't know you, don't know why you would write this book, maybe could you just touch on your story so people get where you're coming from? Sure. Okay. Thanks for having me yeah. on, Joseph. Um, yeah. So, so I'll introduce myself. So, my name is Mark Horowitz. Uh, I'm another Aussie. Uh, living in London at the moment. I, I grew up in Sydney. I did medical school there. I trained, I started training as a psychiatrist uh, in Sydney in my late twenties. Um, I, I moved to London to do a master's of neuroscience and then a PhD in the biology of depression and how antidepressants work. And I was really interested back then in finding out why antidepressants worked, why they didn't work well enough, what we could do to improve um, their effectiveness. And I studied in a molecular biology laboratory at King's College London, where I did a PhD on stress hormones, inflammation in depression and, and how antidepressants affect that. Um, there was a turning point in my life when I, at the end of my PhD, I read a paper about withdrawal effects from antidepressants. And I found that very startling because I had never heard about withdrawal effects from antidepressants in medical school, in psychiatry training, or in my PhD. And 
you know, the drugs that cause withdrawal effects are drugs like opioids, OxyContin, well known in America, benzodiazepines like Valium or Xanax. And my, what I understood about those sort of drugs were they wear off over time because every drug that causes withdrawal also causes tolerance. You don't get one without the other. Those drugs are generally not that good for you. And so it was startling to me to learn that antidepressants cause withdrawal effects. Um, and I thought maybe I should try coming off my antidepressant because I had at that point been on an antidepressant for 15 years. Um, I went on it when I was in uh, medical school. I was very, uh, I was probably baseline. If you've ever seen a, a Woody Allen film, I come from a, a neurotic Jewish family um, and uh, I was very indecisive about medical school. So like one in six people in the Western world, I walked into a GP's office and was given an antidepressant, a variety of different drugs. I ended up on Lexapro, which I've just learned was one of the best-selling drugs in Australia, like in America. Um, and I had taken it for 15 years, always a bit ambivalent. I never knew if it was helping me or not, but I sort of thought this is the right thing for someone like me to take. Uh, I came from a very medical family uh, and I was used to seeing it prescribed in uh, in hospital, so it was very normalised to me. And this and this was startling to learn about withdrawal effects. And so I decided to come off the drug um, and I came off in what I thought was a very slow way. I came off over about four months. I halved the drug basically four times. I used a liquid version of the drug. Um, and at the end of that process, I ended up in the most uh, hellish experience of my life. I... I had trouble sleeping. I would wake in the morning feeling like I was being chased by a wild animal. Uh, I would be in a state of panic and terror that would last for 12 hours of the day. I would get a bit of relief in the evening. Uh, I felt dizzy. Things around me appeal, appeared unreal. And I basically spent day after day, then week after week, just trying to survive. I took up running and I ran until my feet bled. I spent hours trying to meditate. I listened to John Kabat-Zinn's body scan several thousand times. Um, I, I used beta blockers. I, I think I had some benzodiazepines around at that point. I, I just tried to survive. After a few weeks of that, I was so worn out. I thought, I'm not sure I can survive this. Um, and I ended up going, short, long story short, I ended up going back on, on the drug slowly. I, I reinstated to a full dose. I was so shaken by the experience. I actually ended up moving back from London where I was then living, finishing my PhD, back to my parents' house in Sydney. Uh, a grown, an apparently grown man in my 30s, basically on my parents' floor in tears because I was so, I was so rattled by the experience. And, and a couple of things from that, you know, what I had when I came off the drugs was nothing like the existential concerns, the pessimism, the negativity I had in my 20s. If, if what I had when I went on the drugs was three out of 10, what I had when I came off the drugs was, you know, nine and three quarters out of 10. So it was completely different experience. I've never had panic attacks, never had trouble uh, with insomnia. And in that process, um, you know, I read, I went and looked at two different forms of information. One, I went and read all the papers that were written by my professors. 
uh, and the people in my the, the the leaders of my field because at that point I was the the place where I did my PhD King's College London during my time in my PhD it passed Harvard as the most cited research institute for psychiatry in the world so I was working with the world leaders um, you know that Oxford Cambridge King's and their papers said coming off antidepressants is fairly easy there are mild and self limiting symptoms you can come off in a few weeks and then I also went and looked online. Um, and at first of all, I found a few people with similar experiences to me. I thought, oh, we're an unlucky few. And then I found dozens and then I found hundreds. And eventually I found thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people with similar experiences on groups like surviving antidepressants, different Facebook groups. And I realized that it wasn't just me having a bad time. It was a much wider spread phenomenon. Uh, and, and, and although I was a very, you know, I think I am a very institutionalized person. I spent my entire life in lecture halls and hospitals, listening to professors, you know, being part of what is almost like a military structure with the professors, like the generals at the top. Uh, I, 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 it was very clear to me that what the professors were saying was nothing like the reality of what was happening on the ground. Um, I went back on the drugs, as I said, moved back to Australia, continued my psychiatry, continued my psychiatry training. Um, put this to the back of my mind for a couple of years because I was really so scarred by it. <clears throat> for, a variety, for a variety of reasons, I ended up on more medications because I saw doctors in part because I had a lot of health complaints over the years, mainly trouble with daytime fatigue. I would often fall asleep during the day, memory and concentration troubles. And I had once actually had a very, very good memory. Uh, and over the years, it had gotten worse and worse to the point where I was I've seen doctors, I've been given various diagnoses at one point, chronic fatigue syndrome, later on narcolepsy, and I ended up seeing more doctors, I ended up on more medications. So in 2018, I was actually on five medications prescribed uh, for narcolepsy with some overlap with psychiatry, two antidepressants, a Z drug, a sleeping tablet, a specific drug for narcolepsy called Xyrem, which is gamma hydroxybutyrate, which is essentially a strong form of a benzo in lots of in lots of ways, uh, and uh, and a stimulant. So I was on uppers and downers and lefters and righters, um, all trying to find all because one drug would lead to anxiety and another drug would lead to fatigue. And so I was sort of on what I see now in retrospect was a prescription cascade. In any case, um, 2018 on five drugs. I was functioning the poorest I've ever functioned my entire life. I was walking around the hospital as a psychiatry trainee, basically with a, with a, with a pad and a, and a pen and writing down everything that everybody said to me because my memory was so poor that I just couldn't remember things without, without some kind of note taking ability. I was working part time because I was so tired. I had arranged to have a room, um, that I would go to at the hospital where I'd have a nap during the day because I was so fatigued. And at some point I thought it's becoming unethical for me to practice as a doctor with this impaired a memory. Um, and I decided to take a break from work. And I thought about actually taking medical retirement because I thought I am, I am so unable to think straight. I'm so tired. I don't think that I can keep going. And at that point I was only working two and a half days a week. I took a break. Um, and in a slightly uh, cl cliched choice in a kind of, um, I went to Thailand to a meditation and yoga retreat. 
in my kind of a uh, version of Eat, Pray, Love, uh, me, me, me starring in the Julia Roberts role, not very competently. Um, and I, in, in this, in this retreat, I did a lot of walking meditation that happened in a, in a, in a Thai jungle monastery with a, uh, a Thai, uh, a monk who was very into Vipassana meditation. Anyway, during this, I thought, why am I on all these medications? Um, you know, and I, and I decided to, to, to try to come off them. And this time I, I knew who the experts were at that point. They were the people that I had come across online. And I followed the guidelines that people had put out on places like surviving antidepressants. I think you've, you've interviewed Adele Framer, the, uh, the brains behind that operation. And I slowly, and I came off my drugs much more slowly than I had, uh, previously. And two, two major things happened from that. Uh, one, a lot of these symptoms that I'd had for years, fatigue, trouble concentrating and memory problems started to resolve as I came down. Even though I had withdrawal symptoms much less than before, I could still feel suddenly, um, I was less fatigued during the day, uh, and, 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 and I was able, and I was, and I was better able to concentrate. The second thing was that I wrote an academic article about what I'd learned on these websites. I combined it with some uh, neuroimaging studies I'd come across in my, in my PhD and seen on Adele's website. And I basically explained the sort of principles that's, that's, that we've written our textbook about essentially that you've got to come off the drugs more slowly than people generally do, do it at a rate that an individual can tolerate and be especially careful for the last few milligrams because those last few milligrams have an outsized effect, this hyperbolic tapering we can talk about a bit more. And that paper was published in the Lancet Psychiatry, a prominent journal in psychiatry in uh, Europe. And that article got quite a lot of attention. It was covered in the New York Times, it was covered in The Guardian, it was covered in quite a lot of um, British and European media. And it led over the next few years into a, a uh, step change in guidance in, in England. So now the NICE guidelines, which are the main guidelines telling doctors how to practice GP psychiatrists, now recommend hyperbolic tapering for antidepressants, for benzodiazepines, for Z drugs, uh, and opioids. Um, and the Royal College of Psychiatrists put out similar guidance aimed at patients, explaining the principles that I'd put forward in this paper. And since then, I've set up a clinic in the National Health Service, that's the public health system in England, where we help people to safely come off antidepressants, benzodiazepines, Z drugs, and gabapentinoids. And all of my research since then has focused on how to safely stop these medications and involved, as we might talk about a bit more, a reappraisal of some of the studies proving their long-term effectiveness. Um, and so that that leads me probably to why I wrote this 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 textbook. Well, which was, let me ask before before sorry, we go sorry, go in there because um, I I want people to understand I guess the the impact this has had on you because I, I know you touched on it like brutal withdrawal originally brought you back to your parents' home. You got back on medications. Clearly you were having side effects when coming off. And I, I know you've talked about this before, but um, antidepressant withdrawal is something that still affects you today. Um, could you just um, talk about the, I guess the lasting impact on this, just so people get a sense of like, um, you know, how significant, you know, what, what, what happened to you was and, you know, how it's still, 
um, with you today. So I, so I said, I, 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 one chapter of my story started in 2018. That was when I started, I started tapering in August, 2018. That's when I took leave from work and went to uh, Thailand. Um, I am still tapering. It's now February, 2024. So it has been bloody hell. It's getting towards six years. So I, I, I am still, I was started off on five drugs. I'm on today on two drugs. In two days, I'll be on one drug. I'm about to finish uh, tapering Lexapro, which I've been on now for 20 years. So exact, almost exactly half of my life. Um, I'm, I'm on I think 0.002 milligrams today. I've got two more doses left before I'm done. I have been tapering at a rate probably around 10% a month, give or take, sometimes quicker, sometimes slower. Um, I... You know, I don't want to alarm people that everyone will take six years. I went slower than I probably needed to because I've been very busy the last few years working. I've probably sacrificed some of my own health to keep working in that period of time. Sometimes I wished I'd taken more time off to come up, to focus on coming off my drugs sooner rather than plunging into work. But I was so um, keen to, I guess, get the word out about what was going on to patients that I have, I have prioritised uh, that over my own health sometimes. Uh, at different points, I've gone too quickly. I, I spend a lot of time telling patients, don't be impatient, don't rush. But of course, I've done exactly the same thing at different points. So I'm, it's very easy advice to give. It's much harder advice to take. Um, uh, so at different points, I've gone too fast. That's, that's actually slowed me down because it's often led me to plateau for a while to stay at the same dose. I've updosed a couple of times and I've got into trouble. I made a foolish error by taking a fluoroquinolone and a steroid at one point in there a couple of years ago, which really made me quite unwell for about nine months afterwards. Um, so there's lots of, I've had, I've made almost every mistake you could possibly make. Um, I'm in my final milligram down to about, I think 0.8 milligrams of metazapine, um, which I found a very difficult drug to reduce. So throughout that five years, at different points, I've been quite unwell. I think I've been between mildly unwell and, and, and moderately unwell. You know, I'm often, um, you know, feel, uh, so it's, it's, it often makes me, it often gives me a very foggy head, a very, sometimes makes it very hard to concentrate. Um, uh, it has made me tired. Um, and it's made me, you know, very, it's had a very big emotional effect. It's made me very, um, dysphoric at different points. Um, so it has made, it certainly made life hard. I feel like I'm sort of living life through, you know, a few centimeters of mud or, or just a bit underwater. You know, I can, I've kind of keep doing, I think I'm living life probably at 75% of normal, you know, different points. It's been mm -hmm. much lower than that in this process. Um, you know, it's affected my social life. It's affected my professional life. Everything, I, everything is a bit harder. But I, do, I work slower. Um, so it's definitely had a, a lasting effect. I mean, I, as I speak to you today, all those symptoms are present. I've kind of become used to it. So I sort of got into the stage of just, you know, I, I constantly have depersonalization, derealization. Um, but I, I've sort of trained myself to ignore most of these things. So I've sort of, at different points, I've crawled. Sometimes I've stumbled on my knees, uh, you know, and that's how I've got through the last few years. Great. Thanks. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's an important to, to, to realize, you know, what protracted withdrawal can do and the impact it has and, and also just the, the, the drive behind what you do. And so, 
let's segue. Let's talk about the book now. Um, Mark, when you wrote this book, what were you hoping it, it would achieve? So, I mean, pretty simply, you know, I want all doctors, all prescribers, GPs, psychiatrists, pharmacists, nurse practitioners, anybody involved in prescribing or the care of people with mental health problems who are taking mental health medications, I guess, to know as much about it as I had learned in the last few years. Um, you know, I want them, I want them to, you know, if, 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 um, if I had known what I know now years ago, I would have saved myself, you know, the terrible um, trouble I went through when I tried to come off my antidepressant after my PhD. And I guess putting myself aside, you know, since then I've had so many emails from people around the world, from America, from Europe, from Australia, about their troubles coming off antidepressants, benzodiazepines, other psychiatric drugs, and how much harm is caused to people's lives by people not understanding both the side effects of the drugs, withdrawal effects of the drugs, and how to come off them safely. Uh, you know, I've heard people who have lost their marriages because of withdrawal effects. They've lost their jobs. They have lost their savings. And I know people, because I speak to their families, who have lost their lives because they have become so... Um, uh, debilitated, so depressed, so badly damaged or injured by withdrawal effects from these drugs that they have not been able to go on. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 I hear about people with akathisia who are, you know, who's, who are on the brink of suicide, who's, whose families are keeping them alive by, you know, cajoling them, uh, spending every moment watching them. And I just... And I just hear again and again that when they interact with the medical system, there's not, there's, there's, there's a lack of understanding. When they turn up to the emergency department, when they turn up to GPs or psychiatrists, these doctors and clinicians don't understand the profound effects of withdrawal. They don't understand a lot of the side effects, adverse effects of the drugs. And because of that lack of understanding, one, these issues are not diagnosed properly. They're not managed to the degree that they can be managed. And to add insult to injury, not only are people extremely unwell, but they're told there's nothing going on. You know, it must be in their heads. It must be relapse. It must be another condition. Uh, and I've seen families being convinced by the authority figures of doctors who have then sort of turned on the patient and decided that the the patient is wrong and they should take medication like the like the doctor is is recommending. So I just see such a hurricane of of harm caused by a lack of understanding of these drugs and how to come off them. And I was really hoping that by explaining it step by step, outlining um, what the drugs do, what, what withdrawal effects can be caused, what protracted withdrawal looks like and how to safely come off them, that clinicians will learn about what is going on, be able to help people more effectively and avoid so much of the harm that's occurring. Mm -hmm. um, and doing it in a way, you know, I, 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 you know, I tried to keep two main ideas in mind when writing this book. You know, I want to, I wanted to write, I guess, a book that's radical. You know, that 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 is radical means a, a, a gross departure from what is currently what 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 current practice is, and I think current practice falls short in a in a very um, serious way. So that it would be, you know, a big change in practice, but that be written in a way that clinicians can understand and follow because 
you know, of course, you know, it's quite a big, I spend a lot of time talking to my colleagues, friends, colleagues, academics around the world, psychiatrists about this stuff. And of course, it's very confronting to them. You know, they've been taught something. It's like saying to somebody, the sky is red because they've been taught these drugs are fairly safe, fairly effective, fairly easy to stop as I had been taught. And I can see it's a huge change in mindset. So I wanted to present the book in a way that would, that would be appealing to clinicians, outline things step by step and make it easy for them to implement. So, you know, giving them a whole lot of structured instructions, step by step guides on how to go through every specific drug, how to adjust a taper to an individual, what to look for, how to, how to troubleshoot. Sure. Let me, let me jump in here. Um, so there's a lot of, um, for people who may be listening right now, um, who are thinking about coming off medications or partway through, what do you think is, you know, if, if they were going to buy this book, what, what's the best way that they would use it to, to help them with their current situation? How, how would you recommend that they use this book? Right. So I, I guess there's, in some ways, there's two targets for the book, which is a bit of a tricky to have, to have two, two target audiences. Mm-hmm. One is the clinicians I've mentioned. And I think, you know, the book is written as a clinical handbook for professionals. You know, it's part of a series that you mentioned, the Maudsley Prescribing Guidelines, you know, that is often used by professionals. But we also took pains to make it simple enough to understand for, for the public at large um, so I think there's two ways that someone who is considering coming off their medication or is already coming off or could use it is one is to give it to their clinicians or to let their clinicians know that it exists to say, you know, you, you've mentioned that there's no guidelines on this stuff. There's no textbooks on this stuff. Um, well, you know, now there is something you could refer to to give some structure to the process. And I'm hoping the clinicians will recognize, you know, the brand of the Maudsley and understand that it's, you know, written very carefully uh, carefully edited and, and carefully quality controlled and based on, on on the best evidence. And I think that some patients, you know, because look, there's a little bit of a move for patients to be empowered in their healthcare these days. So I think an informed patient is a more, is a patient in a stronger position. You know, I, you know, I had to learn everything myself uh, and I'm hoping that this has sort of turned it into a digested version of, of, of what people need to know to come off these medications. So I expect some people, some members of the public might buy it to inform themselves, to know, to know what to ask their doctors for, maybe what formulations would be relevant to give their, their clinicians an idea of, of a time scale. And I think, you know, the more informed, even if the clinician ends up being in charge or being part of shared decision making when coming off these drugs, I think that if, if patients are, are informed by the process, they'll be in a stronger position to both advocate for themselves and know what to do. And I'm just going to say to, to anyone listening to this right now, um, listen, unless you're getting like a, a knee replaced or a hip replaced or you've had a heart attack, I mean, most of the chronic disease management, I think you really in this day and age, you really do need to be active in your care, unless it's something that's very simple and not controversial. Um, you need to know what's going on. You know, we have a system at the moment that can be incredibly transactional and quick. And unless you know about what's happening, I mean, really bad things can happen, just like what happened to Mark and what's happened to hundreds of thousands, I'm going to say, other people out there. And so, 
if you're thinking about tapering mirtazapine, cymbalta, clonopin, anything like that, and you are going to do this with your doctor, you will be in such a better position if you put the effort in up front to actually learn the outline of what that looks like. And, you know, in a book like Marx, where he kind of breaks it down by drug, um, I think that could give a very good overview for the things that you need to be thinking about before working, but you know, before doing something like this with your doctor. Another thing I want to ask you about Mark, because, um, and I'm not sure if this is in there because there's only so much you can talk about. Do you actually speak to what protracted withdrawal injury is within the book, you know, describing it clinically um, as, as an entity? Because sometimes patients have a hard time even getting that recognized as a legitimate thing. Could you tell us how your, your book does or does not touch on that clinical entity? So, so it, it, it definitely does touch on that clinical entity. It has quite a large section on it. So, I mean, maybe I'll, maybe I'll, I'll give you an overview of the structure of the book because it'll, it'll explain where all that fits in. You know, basically, so the book covers every, the drug classes, antidepressants, benzodiazepines, Z drugs, and gabapentinoids. And so taking, as an example, antidepressants, it first of all goes through when and why to stop antidepressants. So a lot of people, and, and then when and why to stop benzodiazepines and Z drugs, because a lot of people come to me or email me to ask, should I stop an antidepressant or a benzodiazepine? They're, they're at the stage of thinking about it. They've, they've maybe heard a friend of them has stopped it. They've seen a video. Um, they've seen a news show. They're thinking about stopping it and they want to know, is it the right decision for them? And so we go through in that, um, you know, when, why and who, uh, we go through some of the issues that are important, things like, how effective are antidepressants or benzodiazepines or Z drugs or gabapentinoids in the long term? What does the evidence say broken down simply for, for different conditions? Um, what is the short-term evidence? What is the long-term evidence? And what are the common side effects of these drugs? What's called side effects, what might you might refer to as adverse effects. And what I found in my clinic is a lot of people don't put together the, the adverse or side effects that they have with the drug. So what I often have done in my clinic is pull out the patient information leaflet inside drugs. And often doctors say to people, look, don't read that. It's written by the lawyers. Don't worry about it. I say to people, this is written by the lawyers. Should worry about it. They wouldn't put it in there if it wasn't serious. And I've often found that patients will tick 15 side effects on, on the drug they're on. And they will never have put together the fact that their bowel issues, their fatigue, their sexual problems, their nausea, their weight gain was to do with the drug, you know, because as I'm sure you're, you're, you've seen, and when you take an antibiotic, you get sick with nausea that day, you know, it's the antibiotic. There's no, there's no discussion, but with antidepressants or other psychiatric drugs that can sort of build up insidiously, people on them for 20 years, I don't remember what they were like before they started them. Sometimes people don't put together that the side effects they have are because of the drugs. So we, we lay out the common side effects including in long-term studies, because sometimes people say, oh, side effects go away. But most long-term studies say that's not true. The side effects tend to persist, although some can some can get it go away and some can get worse. So we outline all the different adverse effects and we discuss the sort of things that are in people's minds when they're trying to make a decision about stopping. So, for example, if it comes to antidepressants, so it's relevant to other drug classes, the number one reason people come to my clinic 
is that they feel numbed on these drugs. They feel that they don't have the full range of their emotions. And some people will say when they first started the drugs, that was very helpful. They were in a state of panic or anxiety and turning down their emotions from a 10 to a three was a great relief. But now, two years later, five years later, 15 years later, 30 years later, they feel that the, the, the issue that they got on the drug for has gone away. You know, the divorce, the job loss, the changing cities is, is well, is, is in the past and the emotional numbing has stayed. It's affected their quality of life. It's affected their relationships and they want to see who they are. That's a, that's a very common phrase. I want to see who I am underneath this drug. You know, other, other very common issues are sexual side effects, weight gain. Um, you know, everyone, often people have specific issues that, that worry them. Often women who want to become pregnant, uh, also, uh, think about coming off the drugs. Um, we also talk about the long-term effectiveness of these drugs, because a lot of people have been told by doctors, you should stay on this drug long-term. And I, I explain in the book why these relapse prevention studies are, are flawed. So it takes, a, it takes a minute to unpack, but it's probably worthwhile. So I might explain it. Well, let, let, let me ask, I, I think I, I want to spend more than a minute on that actually. Um, but the, could you maybe just before we touch on that, um, it sounds like there is a section on protracted withdrawal injury, like the clinical features in there, right? Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. And so I want to tie, I want to tie this up in a bow before we, um, before we go into what Mark was just saying on that. And that is that from my vantage point, you know, and I, do a lot of tapering myself. One of the most difficult things is even getting doctors to recognize that someone's having a protracted withdrawal injury. Um, and that, you know, stacking drugs on top of that isn't a good idea, you know, that it has a clinical course and a, and a reasonably good prognosis if, if left alone to heal this book with its, um, 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 you know, with the Maudsley mantle, which is wide respected, widely respected, um, is probably going to be one of the, 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 the only places where you're going to have authoritative information about what protracted withdrawal injury is from antidepressants. Um, you know, and you know, the benzo stuff is in the FDA label if you're in the U S but to have it also in this book is, it's going to be great for getting the recognition that you need, um, that, that this is a, a condition. So if, if you, if you're someone out there who's got protracted withdrawal injury and you want to work with a doctor who, you know, is not going to, you know, lump you on other drugs and is going to support you while you heal slowly with a gradual taper, um, you know, scanning some chapters out of this book or dropping the book off with them is also going to be a huge help. So, um, that that being said, I mean, the book is the book is available on Amazon. You're just going to search Maudsley Deprescribing Guidelines, and um, and and you should definitely grab a, a, a copy if you're working with your doctor. And so, and with that being said, I think let's transition now because I I really want to dig into some of these other things that you were that that you were mentioning. Mark, is there anything else you want to say, quickly say about the book before we yeah, I'll just, transition? I'll just, I'll just touch on the, the protective withdrawal issue. So we, we do go through protective yeah. withdrawal for each of the drug classes, antidepressants, benzodiazepines, yeah. 
We certainly refer to the FDA label in the benzodiazepine section. We, we, we take great pains to go through how to distinguish withdrawal from relapse or other conditions. So people get diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, functional neurological disorder, new onset mental health disorders. We go through in detail how to distinguish between those states. We outline what the symptoms are of protective withdrawal and also what the treatment options are. Um, you know, in brief, yes, as you say, the prognosis is generally good, although it can be very long, can be very hard for people to get through it. We talk about the role of reinstatement, you know, very careful, often at a low dose to test the response. And then, you know, there is a section when people are in real trouble, sometimes <clears throat> they will use other medications as a last resort. And we kind of outline what might be options there, putting in the proviso, of course, that all those medications can lead to similar trouble. So you've got to be very cautious, but we do definitely uh, highlight those issues. Yeah. Great. Thank you for, for wrap, for wrapping that up nicely. Let's, so let's, let's talk about relapse prevention studies, I guess, in the as straightforward a way as we can. And so the, maybe I'll try, I'll try and set some context and then, and then have you jump in. So, um, when antidepressant drugs uh, come onto the market, it's usually, you know, with a eight week study, something around about there, it's, placebo controlled and um uh that was the registra that was the study that was needed for a long time to get the drugs on the market at least in the u.s i imagine it's exactly the same in other places in the world that you need two of them um and that's essentially shows regulators that the drug works um at least for that period but where relapse prevention studies come into this is it's a type of study that allows a drug company to say that the drug can be used on an ongoing basis. Um, and so it's the reason why doctors don't say, well, we should only really use this drug for eight weeks because that's what the original clinical trial was for. It's the, the piece of clinical trial evidence that, that has allowed so many doctors out there to say, Hey, you know, this person should just be on this drug, you know, on an ongoing basis. So, uh, they're, they're a really big deal. Um, and I think that there's, you know, a lot of problems with them because, you know, like Mark mentioned earlier on, you know, there's no real reason for to think that these drugs work any differently from other drugs because, you know, we're always worried about, yeah, you know, you, you can become tolerant to the beneficial effect of, or, or the drug effect of any drug long-term. So I think just in that idea, you know, why would it be any different with antidepressants? Why wouldn't this be kind of thought of as, you know, this is going to be something that you're going to take, but eventually you probably become immune to the effects as you get used to it. And then kind of, you just dig yourself deeper into a hole over time. And anyway, that's essentially what I see. I see people on the medications going on higher and higher doses as they get used to it. And so it's interesting that I think intuitively that makes sense to a lot of people that, Hey, this is probably not a good long-term solution just based on what we know about how people respond to drugs. But there's this, there's these studies out there that uh, seemingly support that we should be taking these medications long-term. So uh, that's, that's, that's my introduction, Mark. I want you to just kind of dive into, you know, What's going on with these relapse prevention studies? Great. So I was going to say one thing about tolerance first, and then I'll t turn to relapse prevention mm -hmm. studies. So exactly as Joseph just said, 
most drugs that you use long-term, you get used to. You know, we all know that for caffeine, for opioids, it's well known because, you know, it's because of the principle of homeostasis. We like to be in the middle. You know, if it's too hot outside, we sweat. If it's too cold outside, we shiver. Our bodies and brains like to be in the middle. And so anything, including a drug that disrupts that, the body tries to adjust to make it less disrupted. And so if you're given benzodiazepines, you become less sensitive to them over time. That's tolerance. The same is true for antidepressants. For a long time, drug companies tried to avoid saying that because they used, they used euphemisms like discontinuation symptoms and said drugs like this don't become, don't form tolerance. But of course they do. In some ways, it's kind of mad to say they don't because withdrawal and tolerance are two sides of the same coin. The degree to which you become accustomed to a drug is tolerance. And that's what predicts withdrawal. The more you get used to a drug, the more you get withdrawal when you stop it. So there are studies that show tolerance occurs to antidepressants. In America, with your uh, colourful language, you, you you talk about poop out, which is a way of describing tolerance uh, in a colloquial way. And so, of course, antidepressants have tolerance, which which brings up this very surprising finding where in the short-term studies for antidepressants, they have quite small effects. It's very hard to tell the difference between an antidepressant and a placebo. We'll talk about more. But when they come to relapse prevention studies, they seem to have large effects. And why is that so? So what is a relapse prevention study? So this is what a relapse prevention study is. This is a uh, generally a drug company will take a group of people. So I talk about antidepressants and depression who are on antidepressants and they're remitted. That means these are people who are who have improved on the drug, which actually is already a selected group of people, but that's who they choose. And then they randomize them, half of them to stop their antidepressant and half to continue. And they, they watch the patients for another, say, six or 12 months. And in this period of time, they measure relapse and they use a depression scale to measure that. And a depression scale there are some famous ones called the Hamilton Depression Scale or the Montgomery Asperg Scale. And they ask people about, do you feel tired? Do you feel depressed? Do you feel anxious? A whole lot of different symptoms of depression. And if you get a certain score, then you get diagnosed with depression. And if you put together a lot of these different studies, what you find out is that people who stop what they call the discontinued group, 40% of them relapse. That is 40% meet the criteria for depression. So they've got worse. Whereas of the people who stay on the drugs, only about 18%, about half as many people. So they say, look, if you stay on the drugs, uh, 80% will stay well and 20% will get depressed. But if you come off them, there'll be twice as many people getting unwell. And therefore, it's better to stay on them. And actually, this six to 12 month period is what a lot of the guidelines recommend. So they say, if you're in America or Canada or England or Australia, they say, stay on antidepressants for at least six months after an episode of depression. And it's because of these studies. It's a very famous study done 20 years ago. Um, and this is what informs the guidelines in, in many countries. Now, you might see there's a there's an issue with these studies. So I'm going to go through step by step where the issues might be. Number one, 
this is already a very selected group of people. So people who get better on antidepressants, there's a debate about it, but it's a small group, maybe 15%, maybe less. So this is already not representative of most people who take antidepressants. But the biggest issue is how these drugs are stopped. So in these, there's about 30 studies in this famous review that, in, that informs most guidelines. In most of these studies, antidepressants are stopped over one day abruptly. The average period of time is five days. The longest, I think from memory, is four weeks. One of them might have done it in eight weeks. But most of these studies do it in one day. Um, so what might happen? Well, depression is measured using scales that measure mood, anxiety, sleep. And of course, withdrawal symptoms will occur to the people who stop their antidepressants. And those withdrawal symptoms will cause them to say yes to a lot of these questions. If they're asked, are you anxious? They'll say yes. If they, if they say, are you depressed? They'll say yes. Are you having trouble sleeping? Yes. I think of myself, if you recall my story, when I was in withdrawal, I would have answered, you know, yes, sir, to all of these questions and, and certainly been diagnosed with relapse of depression, relapse meaning return of depression. Uh, and you can see then that this 41%, some of it, maybe quite a lot of it, is probably made up of withdrawal effects being mistaken or misdiagnosed as relapse because in all of these studies, none of them measured withdrawal effects. They just measured depression on a depression scale. So none of them took into account that stopping the drugs would cause withdrawal effects. And that means that this difference between 41% and 18%, a lot of that is probably to do with withdrawal effects and not to do with the drugs preventing relapse. And so there are some papers that have been written about this that estimate what proportion is due to withdrawal. And they estimate it's probably all of it, that 23%, the difference between these two groups, is explained by withdrawal effects. Um, I'll, 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 I'll give this um, an even simpler kind mm -hmm. of take is, I'll give you an example. Now, antidepressants and cigarettes are not the same sorts of drugs, but it's very illustrative to, 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 to use it. These studies are a bit like saying, if people stop smoking and they become anxious and irritable, they should continue smoking because it prevents anxiety and irritability. You know, you can see how ridiculous a conclusion that would be because, of course, stopping cigarettes causes withdrawal effects, which include anxiety and irritability. It's not that cigarettes are preventing, are a, are a relapse prevention treatment for anxiety and irritability. No, it's that they cause withdrawal. And that if you have with, if you have anxiety and irritability coming off cigarettes, what should you do? You should come off the cigarettes more carefully. You might use patches and the same for antidepressants. The correct conclusion I would posit for these studies is it's a sign that coming off in one day or five days is too quick and you should come off more slowly. But these studies have been interpreted as meaning people should stay on antidepressants. And so really the reason why 100 million people around the world are on antidepressants is because of these studies um, being misinterpreted, in my view. And and Mark, what do um, uh, what do the 
I guess the psychiatrists on the other side of this debate say, you know, when when people like you and others who have been kind of sounding this alarm for a long time say, hey, you know, you haven't withdrawn people correctly. You know, the the study is flawed. What are their main counter arguments to it? Because I mean, it seems very clear. Right. So yeah. Uh, so it happens that um, there's been a study done like this. Uh, in the last few years, which has become the sort of the latest, greatest version of this study. Um, and maybe I'll talk about that in, in, in particular, although it relates to all of these studies. So in this study that they did called the Antler study, they took a little bit of um, note of these previous studies and they decided to stop over eight weeks, not over, not in five days. Um, and they measured withdrawal symptoms, but they didn't, they didn't take into account withdrawal symptoms when looking at relapse. So they measured relapse, they measured withdrawal symptoms, they considered them separately. In fact, they didn't really look at withdrawal very much at all. And they found the same conclusion. About twice as many people relapsed in the group that stopped. And I wrote several letters about this and the replies are the following. They say, um, well, um, would, would withdrawal really, really um, register on the depression scales because isn't withdrawal kind of dizziness and headache you know that's those physical symptoms they wouldn't really apply to relapse and of course as anyone out there will know the most common withdrawal symptoms are emotional withdrawal symptoms anxiety depression panic attacks we know that because even people who don't have mental health conditions who come off antidepressants experience those symptoms so there are studies with people with the menopause or people with pain conditions who come off, even people with even healthy volunteers in some studies who come off antidepressants and they develop panic attacks, anxiety, depression. So in other words, of course, psychological symptoms are a part of the withdrawal picture. And of course they will register on the depression scales. In fact, a drug company proved that. They did a study where they took people off antidepressants and they measured both withdrawal and, and these depression scales, and they went up exactly in the same pattern. They gave, they, they gave people the drug, took it away, gave it back, and the withdrawal symptoms and the depression scales went like this. It was obvious they were the same symptoms. That's the first reply. The second reply is um, you could have both. Maybe they do have withdrawal symptoms, but they're also relapsing. Um, and and you go, well, that on the face of it, okay, that's true. But I, I fall back on, um, you know, so, so I fall back on Occam's razor in, in, in medicine. It's true. If you've got a fever and a cough and a runny nose, you could have three different conditions. You could have a nose condition, a throat condition, and a systemic condition. But in general, it's much more likely that one condition will cause three symptoms rather than three conditions causing three symptoms. So yes, you could have both, but when you when these people have dizziness, headache, and low mood and anxiety, it's much more likely they're having a withdrawal syndrome rather than having withdrawal and relapse. And, and the other thing I would say is, I use the term relapse a lot because it's used out there in the literature, but relapse I think is a very um, uh, artificial term because uh, depression is talked about as a relapsing, remitting condition, a bit like asthma. You know, you have bouts of it, then it gets better if you're on maintenance treatment. 
I think most people get depressed when bad things happen in their lives. People get people get put on an antidepressant when they go through divorce, job loss, get diagnosed with a physical health condition, have financial problems. So I don't think I don't think that depression being a relapsing remitting condition is true for most people. What I think is life is a relapsing remitting condition. When things are hard, people get depressed and anxious. When they're better, they're less anxious. So I think it's a bit of an artificial construct to say that depression is a relapsing remitting condition. So I'm not even sure that relapse makes sense. That if you come off your drug, you can't have a relapse of divorce. You can't have a relapse of moving to a new city. So I think for most people, the idea of relapse is itself a very, a very flaky concept. Um, which I think what else do, what else do these people say? They often don't reply very much. For example, when, 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 when letters are being written, they sort of brush it off. Oh, this is their, this is what they say. They say, you're saying, Withdrawal causes relapse, but maybe you're confusing relapse with withdrawal. Um, you know, actually it's relapse that is registering on a withdrawal scale. And that's, you know, I can see there's, there's overlap between the two, but it's a bit of a sleight of hand because they're reporting relapse. They're not reporting withdrawal in a prominent way. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're calling everything relapse. So if some of it is withdrawal, they need to subtract that from the relapse. Their argument that relapse could be withdrawal doesn't really apply in the way they're looking at things. So mm-hmm. they essentially brush off a lot of these ideas. Um, and they also, I mean, a lot of the people don't really believe in severe withdrawal. You know, they have been educated uh, that withdrawal is mild and brief, you know, headache, dizziness, these kind of physical symptoms. So that's not really the same thing we're talking about Um you know, in these, in these studies. So they don't really see withdrawal like probably a lot of your audience sees it. Obviously anybody with withdrawal would be diagnosed with relapse because they're so unwell. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking uh, about a few things here, you know, you know, the relapse, you know, being, uh, you know, right back to what is depression, right? You know, it's this really amorphous construct, um, at least that's kind of how they want us to think about it. I think the intuitive way is that most people think about it is a reaction to life stresses and it's how it turns up in the life of probably 99% of the people who have the symptoms. Um, but yeah, they, they often make it sound like it's this, you know, very discreet medical condition that has this kind of course which is predictable in some way and it has a life of its own and it's just it's simply not it doesn't make sense but um to to give the devil his due let's imagine you know someone has a lot of depressive symptoms because they just live in poverty and they're in an abusive relationship and they just feel terrible and there's a certain amount of therapeutic blunting from the medication and yeah you, you you withdraw the drug safely and essentially the therapeutic blunting just goes away and now they're going to report more symptoms because objectively their life is just very challenging. And so, so there's someone like that, I think, you know, where it's like, okay, yeah, maybe, you know, relapse, maybe that is what that is, is going on. You know, that they don't have the drug on board anymore. And now they have unpleasant symptoms, which they didn't have before, which, which were being masked by the drug. Yes. I still think, you know, in those cases, like, it's still not a great long-term solution. And, and I guess the argument that I fall back on is, is, is maybe not that the, you know, that that person didn't 
have a relapse. It's just that the the long term picture of of antidepressant use is also very unpredictable, um, and there can be side effects that come come down the way. Especially from from what I see now, you know, we've okay, yeah, sure. So that that the person stays on the medications, um, but then what about what's going to happen five years from now, 10 years from now. And, and eventually you do hit a place where they call, you know, antidepressant poop out or, 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 you know, it, it just stops working. And then you end up on this prescribing cascade where now you're on an atypical antipsychotic for depression augmentation that can happen, or maybe you develop PSSD. Um, if, if you're particularly unlucky and, and you may be fine. And there's a lot of people out there who, who take them long-term and it's, you know, they never have any issues, but it, to me, it, it, it's starting to feel almost like a game of Russian roulette. It's like you, you never know where down the line you're going to get hit with one of these issues. And, and when you are the, the journey out of it is, um, it's, it's kind of treacherous is, is, is what I would say. I mean, it's the type of ticking time bomb that could go off at any stage and maybe you're lucky and it never does. But it just, to, to me, it seems like the risk benefit of how we use these drugs as well is completely off, you know, unless someone has, is having the most severe anxiety and depression, the idea of using it long-term when, when something like this could kind of, these side effects could, could emerge later on, um, uh, it, it just wouldn't be, it wouldn't be beneficial. Um, it, it, it wouldn't seem like the type of thing that you would ever want someone to, to, to jump on for, for a, uh, even a moderate depression. Hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I think I agree with you. I, I sort of always, I always sort of um, try to challenge myself when, when should these drugs be used? What is their role? You know, if there is, I think there is lots of harms to these drugs, which we haven't got into in huge detail, but we've mentioned some of them. You know, I think if there is any advantage to the drugs, it is the way that you've talked about them. There is you know, a blunting of emotions that some people might find useful in the middle of, you know, huge uproar, despite there being quite a lot of risks to going on the drugs. But I, I do see the roles being short term. So I, I, I know that the UK and America are very different when it comes to benzodiazepines because they're, they're close to banned in, in the UK. And the way that benzodiazepines are used are for two to four weeks in the case of crisis. And I think, you know, I can see that. I'm, that makes some sense. You know, you use them longer, you start getting dependent. Some people will get dependent on a few, in a few days, but most people won't. Uh, it can get you through a tough spot. I think it would make sense to use antidepressants if they were used in that way. Being told, you know, I think that informed consent is a very big issue here. Being told this drug is going to work probably by blunting your emotions. You know, it might get you through a tough time. You should be on this drug for as little as possible. You know, this drug is probably going to wear off. It has a lot of different side effects. You should use it in the same way that we use benzodiazepines in the UK as a, as a short-term measure. There's a professor of psychiatry around me who got quite a good analogy, which is when you've broken your, your arm, a cast is very helpful. You know, it can be great pain relief. If you leave your arm in a cast, you will disable the limb because the limb will, will, will shrivel, you won't be able to use it. So what is useful mm -hmm. in the short term can become, you know, really the opposite in the long term. I think that's a very- I love it. It's such a good, yeah, such a good metaphor. That's, that's Russell Rizak, he's good with a metaphor. Um, yeah. 
you know, and I and I think you know, I think I think tar dive dysphoria is an issue. I don't know if you've come across that idea. You probably have that this idea that long term use of these medications can cause a worsening of mood. And I think you know, if you reframe what these drugs are doing, you know, I'm sure your listeners will understand that. You know, although these drugs were once said to correct chemical imbalances, it's nothing as simple as that. You know, these these drugs are really altering the chemistry of the of the brain. And I mean, the truth is, we don't really know what they do in the long term. There hasn't been very good studies, but the brain is a very finely calibrated, you know, chemical and electrical uh, machine. And introducing chemicals that grossly change its chemistry, you know, has all sorts of um, consequences. There's a hint that some drugs will increase risk of dementia. There's there's evidence that these drugs might affect bodily organs. You know, there are no long-term randomized controlled trials of placebo versus drug, but in every analysis done, people on antidepressants have an increased risk of stroke, falls, cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, cataracts, and an early death. And there's a bit of a debate as to what degree is the drugs and what degree is the underlying condition, but it's probably to do with the drugs to some degree. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these drugs are having effects on every part of the body, every organ, every system in the body, and we don't exactly know what they're doing. And there are signs that some of those things might be negative. Mm -hmm. I think, um, yeah, I mean, tart of dysphoria is really, uh, really interesting. You know, the, the idea that being on the drug long-term could um, actually put you into a very depressed mood state, probably something that is frequently misdiagnosed as treatment-resistant depression and ends up being a, um, you know, a diagnosis you usually receive shortly before escalating treatments like antipsychotic and antipsychotics and eventually ECT. But it's, I mean, it's a common thing that, that, that occurs with long-term neurological drug use. I mean, we talk about, you know, long-term alcoholism can cause, you know, Wernicke-Korsakoff, you know, brain, you know, essentially a, a form of brain damage long-term antipsychotics can cause permanent movement disorders in people. So the idea of antidepressants taking long, taken long-term, uh, causing essentially, you know, ongoing and potentially permanent problems that impact, uh, you know, the neurochemistry that control our mood and motivation and such. I mean, it does not seem um, like a stretch at all. In fact, it seems completely analogous with what we see with chronic long-term um, drug use, uh, neurological drug use in, in other classes. I mean, lithium causes silent syndrome. That's another one that comes to mind. Um you know, benzodiazepines, protracted, you know, the, the, the protracted withdrawal injury. There's so many of these medications now that when we look at them long-term, they are causing permanent neurological problems in a fraction of people. And yeah. I, I mean, I agree with you. You know, I, I look through things through a pharmacological lens. You know, I take off the wrapper and, uh, and, and all the lettering from companies and look at what is the chemistry of the drugs. You know, I think it's probably well known that, Alcohol and benzodiazepines are very similar molecules. They have very similar effects on GABA receptors and they have quite similar long-term uh, harms. Probably benzodiazepines are a bit less uh, toxic to the liver than alcohol is, but otherwise there's a lot of similarities. I mean, drugs like venlafaxine, duloxetine, Effexor and Cymbalta 
have a very similar pharmacological action to MDMA or ecstasy. They're not as potent um, and have the all the exact same effects, but there's a lot of overlap. They both increase serotonin and noradrenaline. Uh, you know, they're not people who take these drugs mostly aren't going raving all night because it's a lower dose. But if you think about people that are taking a small dose of MDMA every day, you know, you can imagine they would have trouble with sleep, impairments to memory and concentration, and a whole lot of potential physical health problems, which is exactly what you see in the long term in people who are on long term uh, SNRIs and SSRIs. It's, you know, memory and concentration impairment that I had were, uh, is very common, uh, disrupted sleep, and, and all these potential physical health problems. And I think if you look at them through that lens, because I think we've been taught for many years to see them as, as, as benign and safe, because if they're correcting a chemical imbalance, like a lot of people have been thought, then that seems completely fine. You know, no one worries if you've got a thyroid deficiency and you're being given thyroid hormone, that seems particularly, you know, very safe and benign to me. You're, you're replacing something that's missing. You know, why would you worry about that? And so I think the, the public has been lulled into a false sense of security because they have that narrative in their mind. Whereas if you take that away and you see actually there is no chemical problem underlying in depression because one fact I like to repeat is um, by the age of 45, 86% of people will meet criteria for mental illness and most of that is anxiety and depression. So it's not possible that 70 to 80% of people have an abnormal brain. You know, it's, it's a sign of a normal brain response to, to stress. If you take a normal brain and you change the chemistry in it, you can see why you might get issues in the long term. What do you make of the idea of an endogenous type of depression? You know, that old school idea that there are some people that, you know, are simply just become depressed, you know, in the absence of um, contextual stresses in their life. What's your, what's your, what's your download on that? So I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to try and share another, uh, graph i can't i can't speak without graphs um mm -hmm. the the so my answer to that is um essentially i'll give you i'll give you two answers my my anecdotal answer is i've heard about this endogenous depression you know all through medical school and i've never seen a case in my life i've never seen somebody that doesn't have some reason for being depressed something that happened to them in their childhood or, or, or more recently, um, you know, I've always there's always been a, there's always a story behind what's what's going on, um, uh, and then the the research answer is there are a lot of studies that look at what makes people become depressed, what's happening in their lives, and I'm just trying to get up the study. Um, oh dear. Um, what, what it basically shows is that if you plot um, the number of stressful life events somebody has, a stressful life event is divorce, loss of a, of a family member, uh, uh, a period of illness, financial problems, all those are stressful life events. If you count them up and plot against risk of depression, the line is like this. Uh, it's it's mm. an almost... I'm, I'm just gonna. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna pull it up. This is by Ken Kendler, very famous researcher in America. This shows. This is. It's called contextual threat, but it's number of stressful life events 
on the x-axis. Severe means more stressful life events in the previous 12 months or two months, sorry, two months. And then this is risk of being depressed. And what you can see is most incredible steep lines. If I had to compare that to research on brain chemicals, neurogenesis, inflammation, all of those lines are basically flat. It's very hard to tell the difference between depressed people and, and healthy volunteers. This, this is, this sort of relationship is so steep. It's unheard of in the rest of biological psychiatry. And you'll see there's different colored lines. So there is differences between how neurotic you are. So, you know, neuroticism in very simple terms is how sensitive you are to stress is a very simple definition. So if you're, um, if you're a, a nervous ninny like me, you're more sensitive. Uh, someone like Obama might be down here. And so that does affect your response to events. And, and also I should say, you know, I'm not dismissing the role of biology or even genetics because in neuroticism, that's personality. There is a role for upbringing, but there's also a role for genetics. So I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not at all throwing out my, my biological training, but what you can see is basically if there's no stress, there's almost no depression. So if you had to find endogenous depression, you'd have to magnify this, this bit and say, well, there's a couple of percent of people here with no stresses and they're depressed. But really you'd like to look back probably over the last few years of their lives to see what was going on. But basically there's almost nothing here. If you're mm -hmm. really stressed, then there's a lot of depression. You know, not everybody, it's still only 30%, but that's, so that's, it's a ratio. So it's a, it's a risk, it's a risk ratio of 30. So it's very high. It's, it doesn't, sorry, it doesn't mean 30%. It's a bit different for men and women, not that different. So what you can see here is really, this is saying, there isn't much endogenous depression going around. There is a lot of uh, responses to people's lives, you know, what, what is called reactive depression. So, and that, that very much reflects what I've seen in my, in my clinical career. And thinking about my friends and family, you know, most people when they're unhappy, it's because of what's going on. Uh, yeah. That was great. I've actually, I've, I haven't seen, I haven't seen, I know Ken Candler, but I haven't seen that graph before. And, uh, yeah, even if you are, let's say, loaded to respond more to, you know, to be more hurt by things and stressful events that happen, you know, by looking at that, it makes it clear that the biggest, I guess, hinge that you could swing, you know, in helping someone avoid being depressed has to do with helping them with the contextual stresses in their life. Yet, what I think most people learn in medical school, and I think what is kind of, uh, uh, almost mentioned um, and and felt implicitly by people not even in psychiatry is that depression is this kind of fixed medical condition um, and you know occurring at a biological level, which is really counter to what that graph shows. Um, exactly, exactly, exactly. I mean, I, I you know I, I would just quickly say. I think it's a category error to talk about a chemical imbalance or to talk about, you know, a chemical cause of depression. You know, you're looking at the hardware, but really what, what, what the story of, of history and, and these studies are is that it's about our lives and responses in our minds to what's going on around us. Okay. So Mark, I'm going to kind of bring us into the last chapter of this talk, which I think is uh, going to be interesting. It's what is, what is going on in psychiatry why can't people see these things that, 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 that seem to be clear? You know, why, 
why, why are we putting all these people, you know, like, you know, I think you mentioned one in six people, why are we putting them on medications that don't really help them long-term, you know, dangerous, where's the, where's the leadership within the medical establishment? What, 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 what is going on? I mean, it's a, that's probably the $64,000 question. Um, I guess it's, it's multi-layered. Um, you know, I guess I understand it cause I've, I've been there. Um, sorry, my, my lights changed here cause I'm very into circadian rhythm. So my light just went down from bright light to yellow light. Excuse me. Um, yeah. I programmed a sunset in my, in my room. Um, yeah. <laughs> I guess, sorry, it sounds to me like you were, um, more skeptical in your psychiatry training about these ideas, but I, I, I think I was semi-skeptical, but I, I guess I drank from some of the Kool-Aid. Um, so I understand why an individual practitioner, you know, is being taught like I was taught, you know, I, I think a very stage managed version of the literature, you know, I was taught these drugs are, you know, safe and effective meta-analysis were thrown up on the screen. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't really, there was not really a lot of critical analysis applied to them. So I was taught. You know, I, I was very interested in the chemistry and the biology of depression. I, this idea was a mixture of life, you know, social, psychological, biological. And so I was prescribing medication, you know, much like my colleagues. Maybe I was on the slightly below average side, but probably not that far off. So I think, you know, we have been, so, so I think education occurs in this kind of, um, this, this, this biological frame or very biological heavy frame. I think, you know, people have said the teaching is biopsychosocial, but when the rubber hits the road, it's bio, bio, bio. You know, there's a lot of talk about mm-hmm. other factors, but when you're there and you've got 15 minutes and you're in front of a patient and you want to do something, you do something biological. And I think that, you know, doctors are sitting in a, in a, in a microcosm of a larger macrocosm, which is, you know, in our modern world, science is king and, you know, neuroscience is seen as the frontier like spaces and, and the neuroscientific understanding of what causes mental health disorders is the holy grail. And the whole world exists within this kind of technophilia that there'll be technical solutions to everything. And psychiatry, I think, sits within that. And so, you know, to, for people, and I remember that being true for me, you know, what's real is genes and brains and amygdalas. You know, that's the real stuff. And you know, not the soft social and anthropological stuff. So I think that's the frame of things. And when it comes to drug harms and withdrawal effects, there's a great video um, on, it's a psychological experiment, I think from 30 years ago, and it, and it involves um, a group of, so, so this, is the, this is the experiment. You've, you've got to watch this video and there's people wearing white T-shirts and black T-shirts and they are throwing a ball around to one another. And you've got to count the number of times they throw a ball uh, from a white t-shirt to a white t-shirt. And at the end of the experiment, the, the, the subject has to tell you how many times I've thrown the ball. And because the subject is concentrating so intently on where the ball is being thrown and what color t-shirt is being worn, they miss the fact that a man wearing a gorilla suit walks through the center of the, um, uh, the group of people throwing the ball around. In other words, because their attention is on mm-hmm. ball and people, they miss the gorilla. And I think, you know, I think back, I've had a lot of flashbacks to my time as a more biologically orientated psychiatrist. And I'm, and I, and the flashbacks are me realizing the gorilla was in the room and the gorilla was adverse effects or withdrawal effects that I wasn't trained to see. So one, I think you can't see 
what you haven't been trained to see. So sometimes I'm talking to rooms of doctors and some of them say, I've never seen withdrawal effects. I don't know, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. And I, you know, first of all, I thought they were, you know, they're sort of punking me, but I realized that they just, you can't see if you, if you've been taught that anxiety and depression when you stop a drug is relapse, you don't see withdrawal effects. So you don't write it down as your diagnosis. You don't, you don't, your friends don't talk about it. So I think, you know, you don't see what you haven't been taught to see. And when you're obsessed with looking for diagnostic criteria and for what's the next medication, you don't see the side effects. So I, I realize I've missed in the past, I've missed terrible withdrawal effects from patients of mine. I've missed akathisia, you know, all these things that were not on my radar. And now when I go and do shifts in the hospital, I feel like I'm wearing a different set of glasses because half of what I see is drug side effects, withdrawal effects. Um, and my colleagues don't see it. You know, people come in, they've stopped their drug, they're in a terrible state, and people say they've relapsed. So I, I'm seeing a completely different thing to what my colleagues are seeing, which often leads to, to tension. Um, but I guess all the messages are the same. You know, you're going to conferences, you're, you're listening to professors speak, talking to your colleagues, and it's the same, you're in the same sphere of influence. You know, when I, when I sat down and I read books like Anatomy of an Epidemic, I read books like The Myth of the Chemical Cure, you know, I, I literally read for months at a time with my jaw dropped open and my eyebrows top of my head because I had never looked at the literature in that way before. You know, I was just, when I read about the relapse prevention things that I told you about earlier on, you know, my, my eyes almost poked out of my head. I thought, you know, this is such a simple trick and I've never thought about it. I thought, I'm a clever guy. I've read all these studies. I've, you know, done all these exams, you know, but I had never encountered those ideas. And I sort of see now that what I'd been shown was this very, I like to say, stage managed. I'd been seen this little corner of, of, of the, of the literature, eight week studies with lots of methodological flaws. And that's what I'd been brought up on. Um, and I think that all, you know, all psychiatrists and, and therefore the doctors that they educate, like GPs and other doctors, are living in this stage managed version of what what these drugs really do. I, I, I mean, I've got my own ideas about it, and I, I just love hearing um, from other people who have gone through the system. And I think stage managed is is such an appropriate term. And I mean, who's managing the stage at the end of the day? I mean, it's the drug companies, right? Because it's that's that's where I think a lot of the research and the information trickles down from and, you know, drug companies and also the academic psychiatrists who collaborate with them and who, whose careers are tied to products that they help them develop and things like that. And, you know, another thing that comes to mind, I don't know if you use the DSM over in the, in the UK, probably not, maybe you're using something else, but the, uh, none of this stuff is in the DSM. I mean, I look at this 1000 page book, I've, I'm looking at it right now, kind of on the side of the room. Um, and I've pulled it open. There's five pages in there on adverse drug reactions. And that was the book that we all bought as trainees that we look in. And I would, and I also remember looking back before I was kind of awake to what was going on and seeing, um, you know, I would see probably, so many cases of mixed bipolar disorder, which is essentially just highly irritable on, on edge individuals. Usually they're on other medications. And 
I mean, that was akathisia, that was adverse reactions to antidepressants, that was withdrawal symptoms. And we just called it mixed bipolar disorder and put them on lithium and risperdal. Like it was, um, and cause that's, that's what's in the book, um, you know, in the DSM. Uh, so, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you completely. You know, this is the, you can't see what you haven't been taught to see. You know, I've had incredible attacks of conscience since I've worked all these things out. I rang up an old boss of mine. I said, we put all these young people, I worked in a, in a, in a service seeing people between the ages of 12 and 25. I said, we put all these young people on antidepressants. They're not going to get off them. Can we chase them all up to see what's happened to them? You know, because I thought, she said, oh, no, the GPs will look after that. I said, the GPs are not looking after that. And I, I've also remembered... Um, a woman who we went to her apartment, get to break the door open, uh, who was on antipsychotics, who was marching backwards and forwards in, in, in her room. Everything had been ripped apart in her house. It was a complete, you know, like an animal lives there. And I thought at the time, you know, this woman is psychotic. She needs more medication. She was on a huge dose of haloperidol depot and we increased it. And I think back, you know, she had akathisia. She was there month after month alone pacing and we would come in break the door and increase the dose you know i i mean that was basically when i suspended my training i thought i i, I i'm not sure i can go back to, to training um because i thought i thought and then i and then i sort of think those are the things i can remember what else haven't i haven't i remembered how many different people have walked in to the emergency department you know agitated psychotic and how much of it was because of withdrawal effects and, and side effects and i thought i don't know the answer to that but I bet it's not good. And I, that's when mm. I thought, you know, I don't know what I've been doing. So Mark, is there, is the tide changing? Um, yeah, I know you talk to colleagues and things like that. And I know you kind of get into things <laughs> at times. G give me the lay of the land. Like how, how much of an awakening is taking place from your vantage point? I mean, I know you're in a very establishment institution um at the moment i know you probably talk to a lot of doctors give us the pulse of of how receptive the old guard and maybe the new guard is to some of the things we're talking about so it's a good question and it is about old guard new guard so i'll give you one example i gave a lecture my first sort of public lecture on this topic about four years ago now at, at a royal college of psychiatrists equivalent of the apa in, uh, in England, and I gave a talk about antidepressant withdrawal, and it was a debate actually against a kind of a drug company-supported academic who was rebutting what I was saying and mm. saying it wasn't a big deal. Mm. And the the replies in the audience were very um, emblematic. So people in the audience that had more hair than me, people who were younger than me, bastards, uh, mm. asked questions like, uh, which, which drugs can we open up the capsules for and count the beads of? Which ones come as liquids? And is it better to make bigger reductions more spaced out or, or small reductions made uh, more close together? And people that had less hair than me, which is less and less people these days, said, I don't know what you're talking about, Horowitz. I've never seen these issues before. You know, these drugs are very effective. I don't think you should talk about them negatively in public. So it was a really splayed um, response. The younger generation wanted to learn how to help people come off the drugs. This is information. This is new. This is useful. And the older generation, you know, didn't want to hear this, didn't fit their worldview. Uh, you know, I must be a troublemaker. Um, and I think that's probably a bit emblematic of what's going on. So I definitely find more openness to this amongst younger trainees. 
but I wouldn't, I don't know, I don't know how, I don't know how optimistic to sound. I mean, there's a group of critical psychiatrists that are people who are, I guess, share similar views to me, not exactly the same, skeptical about drug company studies, skeptical about seeing mental health conditions purely as biological or chemical. And there's, a, it's a growing group. It's almost 500 psychiatrists, still probably a drop in the ocean, but they, they're people who broadly see psychiatric issues as related to people's lives and use medications in what, in what is called a drug centered model, kind of using it maybe to dampen, to sedate, to stimulate, but not really to cure any conditions. Um, I think in the, I think in the UK, there is, it is more progressive than in America. I think there's a general, the, the center of gravity is slightly closer to understanding that there's, you know, more social factors than in America. I think that's, I think that's probably because there's more influence from government. There's more central guidelines. You know, for example, if you compare the guidelines for depression in England versus America, I mean, they, they're not completely different, but they're pretty different. There's a lot more mm-hmm. psychosocial things in the UK and in America, you know, the, the, I mean, what actually happens in America is almost illegal in England. Guidelines cannot be written by colleges and by people paid by industry. It's written by a government department. You can have some drug company money, but it's disclosed. You can be barred from certain sections of the guideline writing. It's generally frowned on. In America, you know, the APA guidelines written, I think 90% of them have, have money from drug companies. It's basically almost all drugs, even CBT on the side. It's a different world. Um, and so I think that's, that informs a little bit more of a holistic approach in the UK. Those are some, those are yeah. some bright spots. It, it, yeah, it's, it probably seems like a dystopian, brave new world um, from from you across the pond. But I mean, it's you look at the US, and it, it definitely is a capitalist country. You know, there's definitely less government involvement, I think, in healthcare and regulating industry, and it, and it shows. You know, I, I mean, it's the a lot of psychiatric offices, family medicine offices, they're owned by for-profit hospital changes, chains or private equity groups as a creep towards shorter and shorter visit times using mid-level providers as well. And it's essentially turned into a, um, just a, I don't know, um, a revolving door kind of production line of people kind of coming in and, and walking out with medications. Um, and obviously pharmaceutical influence is much larger here because of um, government, uh, you know, uh, policies which allow dr- the drugs to cost more money here. There's a bigger market here. There's more market spend. There's more, there's more of all of that stuff. So it, it's, it's, it's terrible. Um, but I hope something changes because, um, you know, I've heard, I've heard the saying, you know, science progresses one funeral at a time, you know, and I, I worry that that's probably going to be the case with the antidepressants and the benzos and, you know, all of the old guard who, you know, who've been doing this their whole careers. And there may be a lot of dissonance to say, actually, wow, you know, I was kind of part of one of psychiatry's clusters, you know, there's been a lot of them with the lobotomies and I'll just sign myself up as the person who didn't realize this. I think there's an incredible amount of cognitive dissonance, but I do hope that maybe 
there is a push, you know, maybe, I don't know if it has to be you know, the, the, the child of a senator or a president to get harmed by something like this, where it eventually makes a splash and causes people to wake up and get gets things moving without essentially just the old guard slowly dying off and not having to face what's happened. But <laughs> I'm kind of cynical and bleak, but that's how I see it. I, th- yeah. I think I think your cynicism and bleakness is probably warranted. I should I should also shouldn't present the UK as a, as a utopia. It's certainly not when it comes to this. I agree with you. I mean, part of why there's been more progress on this issue in the UK than America is partially because powerful people have been affected by it, or their or their children. So you know, it does come down. You know, when, with one in four people in America on a psychiatric drug, you know, of course there will be senators' children's uh, children on these drugs. You know, it, 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 it hopefully won't take that, but it, it might. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it, it's, you know, I mean, I hope that my colleagues, as they learn more about, I mean, I think, I think sorry, the cognitive dissonance is such a big thing. You know, I, I what's the saying that it's, it's very hard to get somebody to understand something that their job depends on them not understanding is such a key quote in this area. Um, I think it's very hard. If someone came up to me and said, look, everything you've been doing your whole career has caused a lot of harm you know, all my late nights studying for exams, extra shifts has all been, you know, a waste or or harmful. I would be very, very angry at that person. So I understand why people react very strongly to me. You know, there's a lot of hate directed at people that that tell you you're wrong. Um, I'm hoping that some people will have the, uh, the courage and bravery to, to, to go beyond that dissonance and to, and to face what, what is going on. And some people are, you know, I get, I get emails every week from a psychiatrist who wants to know more about how to say to come off the drugs. Often psychiatrists, I mean, I get the most interesting emails I get are from psychiatrists themselves who want help in coming off their drugs. You know, so hmm. I think there's this, there's this kind of conspiracy theorist that doc, that psychiatrists know and they're doing bad things. You know, I don't think that at all. You know, most psychiatrists are like me, learning what they're doing at, at, from university, don't know what's going on, don't see it because of the way they've been trained. You know, there's not, that's not the level of the conspiracy. Um, you know, they just, they're just, and that's why they end up on their drugs themselves. They're drinking their own Kool-Aid like I did. Um, I do think it's a little bit, there's a different level of understanding amongst the academic leaders. I think they, people who are being paid by drug companies to put forward pro-drug messages, who do whatever they can to skew the data to favour the drugs, I think they have more awareness and they have more culpability. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's an interesting group. You know, I've been thinking more about them recently because I I know in the US, I mean, if you're an academic and you want to rise to the top of your profession, you need to publish a lot of papers. You need to be seen as a leader. You need to talk at international conferences and there's various ways you could do this. You know, one way is you're go to the NIH and you try and get a public grant from the government, super competitive. It's also not a very, it doesn't come with a lot of dollars. Maybe you self-fund your research, you know, within your institution, obviously that's not a lot of money and very competitive, or you help drug companies run clinical trials for drugs that they want to come on the market. They give you a lot of money. They write the protocol for you. They give you the staff. They handle data entry, and then they fly you around the place to talk about it. It, it becomes just this this very smooth way to, to earn all of the trappings that you need for promotion. Um, and then if, if that's, I mean, if that's your goal, you know, your self-interest is aligned with like, hey, I want to be the head of psychiatry at my institution. 
why would you say negative things about the drug? I mean, maybe you even think these things sometimes, but you go, you know what? Like, I don't have tenure yet, you know, and, and maybe this is just the way the game is played. And then so you end up in a situation where your name is on a bunch of papers that these drug companies have written. You've just kind of gone with the flow because you're busy and you just want to get to where you want to be. And before you know it, it's like you're so deep in there that you can't speak out against it because, you know, your name is on all of these papers pretty much saying that these drugs are life-saving and, you know, anyone who talks negatively about them is, you know, harmful. And uh, you're essentially, you've just been, I, I guess, bored. Um, and I mean, it's sad to think that, yeah, yeah, that, that I think, I think that's probably the position a lot of psychiatric leaders, um, are in at the moment, you know, they've, they've kind of made the deal with the devil to get to where they are. Um, and, and, and that's kind of it. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think maybe you said it before, but it's almost impossible to become a successful academic without taking drug company money. I mean, it's a very competitive environment. People do do it. I think very brilliant people could do it, but the vast majority of people that become big professors at Ivy League universities or the Russell Group universities generally do take money from drug companies because, you know, it's like having booster rockets. It's like playing in the Olympics. You know, if everyone's on steroids, you need to take steroids and that, that booster rocket is drug company support. So it's very hard to compete with with people that are, you know, they're getting papers sent to them, as you say, from drug companies, putting their names on them. It's very hard to compete with those sort of people just by running a, a clean race. Um, and I also like they use the word groomed to describe what drug companies do to academics, you know, using a little bit sounds a bit like what a, an, a, a, what a pedophile does to children. Um, because it happens slowly. You know, you don't, these, these people are not, they're not saying to you, are you going to go lie for us to the public and we'll give you money for it? No one will say yes to that. They're finding people that are already inclined, you know, in, in a biological way, giving them a bit of money to give a, a small talk that they write. I mean, it's happened to me. Drug companies have approached me, one, to buy, um, to buy abstracts I've written about withdrawal. So a drug company that is selling a new drug wanted to buy my article because it's sort of criticizing the old drug. And I was also approached by uh, a drug company to give lectures about how depot medication would be helpful for tapering. They said, we're so into tapering, it's so great. Um, and now we can see that our depot medication might be useful for that. You can give a talk about any topic you like. You don't have to mention our products, not, not a part of it, but we'll, we'll get you on our roster. Um, and in fact, some of your seniors, people you work with, they've also done the same thing before. And I could see, and they, we didn't, we didn't get to the dollar amount. Um, I said, I don't think I'll do that. But you could see how, yes, I'm sort of interested in that. That does make a bit of sense. And I'm not talking about their, you know, it's sort of small steps and you're being groomed. So by the end, you're, you know, you're, you're saying what they, what they want you to say. Um, although at every single stage, you think this isn't a big, a big deal. I think that's yeah, definitely how it, how it ends up. It's crazy, you know, like, um, you know, I remember working at Janssen and I was like the head of neuroscience. This is right when Spravato came onto the market and um, there were some people criticizing Spravato, just saying, oh, don't make the same mistake with Spravato as the other antidepressants, you know, publications coming out. And I remember just hearing like, you know, we should go and tap this academic and this academic over at these institutions to respond, you know, um, 
and it's so manufactured. It's just like, oh, you know, we rebuttal can't come from Jansen. You know, let's, you know, uh, don't worry. I'm going to go talk to my mates over there. I know that they're, you know, they've run their own independent ketamine research. We're going to get them to respond to this. Um, and I mean, it, they it, probably want it. Yeah. That happened to me. That happened to me. So, you know, I wrote yeah. one of those articles in the British Journal of Psychiatry. We got, we got, so two things happened. They, people who work for Jansen. Was that or, you? Was that actually with the Spravato thing as well? well I, did, I wrote, we wrote an article in the UK, yeah. uh, 2020 about, <laughs> about Spravato yeah. saying it was, it was ineffective and dangerous, which it is. Yeah. Um, and we got responded to, they tried to, we, we don't know where it was, there was two groups of academics. Both of them, one of them was paid by Jansen, wrote letters, <laughs> it, but they did more than that. They tried to get our paper retracted. So one of those groups asked yeah. for our paper to be retracted from the journal. It, it took us nine months of replying line by line, like to legal letters about where our facts came from. We had to go through every single um, fact. It wasn't retracted in the end, but it wasted a huge amount of our time. So, you know, that really yeah. with vexatious complaints, you know, really, really burnt our time down. So yeah. I, I imagine that's happening all over the place. Yeah, I think I was I was kind of behind the scenes on that one. That's funny to, to, to thanks, think about. Thanks, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it's... Yeah, I mean they, you know, they form relationships with people, and then obviously there's a huge incentive to, to to help them um, with things. I mean, I also think about John Mann over in Columbia, another Australian psychiatrist who's who's the 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 Jansen Endowed Chair of um, of Psychiatric Research over there, who's who's published all of those articles against Healy and how antidepressants don't cause suicide, which is just um, it's ridiculous. Um, but they're, 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 they're everywhere. So, and it also seems that, you know, maybe you would have just given up if you didn't have the time to respond to these things line by line. I mean, there's also a kind of an intimidation and a research resource depletion that you can, that you can do, you know, with lawyers and things like that. Well, Mark, we've been, you know, I could talk to you for a million years and, and maybe I will get you, get you on again because there's so much to talk about. But, um, how can people support you? Um, how can they get in touch with you? What's, what's the best way for people to, to, to take next steps if they're interested in you and what you do? So I've got, I've got a, I've got a dinky little website, markhorowitz.org, uh, where I put my work and a contact page. Um, I'm on Twitter with the handle at Mark Horrow. Uh, please think about um, buying my textbook, The Morsley Deprescribing Guidelines. It's sold at Wiley. It's sold at Amazon all around the world. Or letting letting your, your, your prescriber know that it exists, GP, psychiatrist, nurse prescriber. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think it's the nicest uh, Valentine's gift for that special prescriber in your life, but you might consider... Uh, uh, a gift. I know a few patients have bought it for their doctors, um, or letting people know. And if you if you read it and like it, leave a review. That would be very helpful because my my aim is you know that this book becomes as part of the mainstream, as part of the firmament, as the the Maudsley prescribing guidelines or Styles textbooks in America, so that doctors will have both. Because there are so many books telling you about how to start medications. And I hope it will normalize the process of stopping medications so people will understand that more and prevent some of the harm happening out there. Everyone, 
go buy Mark's book. Uh, I think if you're going through withdrawal, if you just want to support what he's doing, um, I, I've got my copy in the mail and I can't wait to use it to train my staff. Actually, you know, I work with lots of coaches. I think it's the best tool that's going to be out there to, to, to kind of grow my team and, and, and help people learn how to do this really important work. So, uh, thank you. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for being here. And, um, uh, yeah, cheers. Thanks, Joseph. Cheers. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wittering Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from Drs. Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at WittduringPsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.